This passage of Scripture, especially verses 17 and 18, are perhaps one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to understand. And they are potentially the most controversial as well because contemporary Christianity is polarized at, at this very point. That, that God who is merciful, that God who is loving and gracious would harden anybody's heart against him, against God. And last week, I think we got a pretty good handle on what it means when God says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion, that anyone, including God, out of the goodness of his or her own heart and out of his or her own resources can extend mercy and show compassion to whoever they wish, that God, out of the, the riches that he has, as creator and God of the universe, he can, he can bestow mercy and have compassion and, and bless people out of those resources without being unfair or unjust in his dealings with others. In other words, it doesn't violate God's justice or his fairness to have mercy or compassion on someone. And those who would say, well, it does violate God's justice, Paul says, may it never be. May talk. Therefore, verse 18 of Romans chapter 9 says, He has mercy on whom he desires, and here is the rub, he hardens whom he desires. You know, it's essential to understand that in order to show the truth of both of these statements, that God has mercy on some and hardens others, that the Apostle Paul quotes scripture for this in support. He shows the truth of it, the truth of it from the word of God. He doesn't leave it to philosophical or theological arguments to make his case. We can read of those and, you know, you get six commentaries, you're going to have seven different opinions on this verse, it would seem. He doesn't leave it to that, but he, he chooses two particular Old Testament scriptures. And as we will see as we go along, he could have chosen other examples as well. But in order to show the truth that God has mercy on some, on, on whom he will have mercy as well, he quotes what God said to Moses. Remember, we saw that in verse 15, quoting Scripture, quoting Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then to show the truth of the matter that God hardens whom he desires, Paul quotes what God said to Pharaoh through Moses. And so we see that in verse 17. To see, we see from Scripture that God hardens whom he desires. The 17th verse. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh. Actually, Moses said it to Pharaoh, and the Scripture recorded it, so it's kind of interesting the way that the Lord puts it there. It says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, in your Bible, it might be in all caps. It does that in the New American Standard. I believe it does. It shows it differently in the, the King James Version as well. But you can see in some of the translations of the Bible that that's a direct quote from Scripture. And so once again, we go back to the book of Exodus. 
And I'm going to warn you again this morning, we're going to be flipping back and forth from Romans to Exodus to Romans to Exodus, and then we're going to do some John and Luke in there this morning. So it's, it's going to be one of those mornings where it'd really be helpful if you open up God's Word and follow along. The ninth chapter of Exodus, the 16th verse. Ninth chapter of Exodus, verse 16, page 74 and page 86. Now this is talking about the fifth plague that the Lord sent upon Egypt, the plague of boils. And then God told Moses to once again go stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that, I may, that they may serve me. And through Moses now, the Lord warns Pharaoh of the coming plagues. We know that there's five more to come. Pharaoh didn't know that. But all the rest of the plagues, the Lord tells Moses that they're going to be against Pharaoh himself, his servants, and all his people. But the Lord says that Pharaoh himself will remain or stand. And then in verse 16 of, Rome, or of Exodus chapter 9, we have the verse that Paul quoted in Romans, the 16th verse. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain, Pharaoh, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Literally, God told Pharaoh, I have made you to stand in the idea of to preserve you. In other words, the idea that you're going to live through this, Pharaoh. Not everybody else is going to be able to, to do that. Uh, Paul quotes it in this way in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. In the way it's translated in Romans, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. I have made you to stand. I have raised you up. And the Lord says, for this very purpose, according to the predetermined purpose of God, I have raised you up, Pharaoh. Now, the idea of being raised up, of, of causing to stand, carries the idea of the rise of historical figures of position, uh, of prominence. It's used in the Old Testament of the Messiah, where it says in Numbers, the Messiah who will be raised up from Jacob. But in raising Pharaoh up and making him stand, so God is not just speaking about Pharaoh's survival from all the plagues. As you know, as you read it, Pharaoh survived all these plagues. He most likely would have been firstborn as well, but he wasn't uh, uh, killed in the plagues. But it's talking about raising him up in his whole place of history. Pharaoh will be remembered in history. Pharaoh will be remembered as the one through whom God fulfilled his predetermined plan and his purposes for his people. And God did this by raising him up and hardening his heart. Ten times it says in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We also read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Turn back in, in Exodus while you're there to the fourth chapter of Exodus, the 21st verse. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21 here Moses is preparing to return to Egypt after being called by God at the burning bush. And Moses took his wife, he took his sons, he mounted them on a donkey. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. 
And we pick it up in verse 21, the fourth chapter of Exodus, where they're ready to go. Family and kids are on the donkeys. He's got the staff in his hand. They're ready to head out. Verse 21 of Exodus 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. And the staff was the, the symbol of that power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now turn over to the seventh chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, the second verse. Moses and Aaron, or Moses has arrived in Egypt. And Moses has talked to the people. And this is just before Moses and Aaron go to appear before Pharaoh for the first time. And here again, the Lord affirms his, his promise. Verse 2 of uh, Exodus chapter 7. He says, Then then you shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Verse 3 but I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So he can multiply sign after sign, wonder after wonder. And here we see why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we're going to look at those reasons in just a little bit. But it's helpful to understand here at this point that here at this point or any place else, is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened their own heart. God only hardened the heart further of the heart that was hardened by the person themselves. In every instance, God hardened, God's hardening followed on what Pharaoh himself did. God's hardening always comes at the end of one of the plagues, uh, where Pharaoh's already hardened his heart, and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a reaction to Pharaoh's own action and hardness of heart. In other words, it was God's predetermined plan to use the evil of Pharaoh and his own hardened heart for God's purposes. God uses the evil of men's hearts to bring about his good to serve his purposes. It's the same thing that Joseph told his brothers. They'd betrayed him, they'd sold him into slavery, and then there was the famine, and the brothers came to Egypt. And Genesis chapter 20, or Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 says, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God uses evil. And God uses evil men to bring about his own purposes. So whether we look at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart from the standpoint of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or from the standpoint of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it resulted in a display of power in God's name being widely proclaimed. And one more thought about this before we talk about the purposes of why God did this. And it is this, God's action is never arbitrary. God's action is not arbitrary. God's actions are never, he always has, has a purpose. He has mercy on whom he desires to have mercy, and he hardens whom he desires. God is selective, not arbitrary. Yet there is a sense when Pharaoh or anyone else rejects the right 
that person will be hardened in the wrong. When anybody rejects what is right, that person is hardened in the wrong. When anyone chooses to reject what is right, he or she will be hardened in what is wrong. And that's what sin does. That's the nature of sin. Sin hardens the heart more and more against God. We saw that in the first chapter of Romans, back in another lifetime, I think, when we were in first chapter of Romans. So, so turn to Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 21, as we review this. The 21st verse of Romans chapter 1. And it's talking about those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, that the wrath of God was revealed against heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness, on those who suppress, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then it says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And then look what it says. And their foolish heart was darkened. Their heart was darkened because even though they knew God, they, they braced against that. And then it goes on and talking about they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. And then look at verse 34, or 24, excuse me. Therefore God, what? Gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. One of the consequences of a darkened heart, one of the consequences of sin, is a darker heart becomes darker and sin becomes more pronounced because God gives them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What does that mean, God gave them over? When God gives people over, he allows them to do what they want to do. He allows them to do what they desire to do. He removes the restraints. He doesn't remove all of them. Otherwise, they would wipe themselves off the face of the earth. If God removed all the restraints, remember in the tribulation period, the one who restrains the Holy Spirit lessens his restraint. And what happens, we have the worst tribulation, the greatest tribulation, the greatest suffering in the history of the world. So, so God doesn't remove all the strengths, but God, in a general sense, allows people to do what they want to do. And he allows them to do what they want to do in a way that fulfills his purposes. It is true that God used Pharaoh. It is true that God used Joseph brothers, but none of these people were puppets they did what they wanted to do in their hearts. And so with that, let's go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 17, and ask the question, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, for this reason, says to Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And we see two purposes here as to why God raised Pharaoh up, put him on this stand in history so that he might do his miracles and wonders and those kind of things. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the first reason is exactly that, that God might display his power in him. Every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, God did another greater display of his power. 
He used Pharaoh's proud arrogance. The Lord demonstrated that his miraculous power was far greater than the Satan-empowered miracles of Pharaoh's magicians. God made a path through the Red Sea. He delivered his people, and then he brought that same sea to rush over and drown Pharaoh's army. So let's go back to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. 15th chapter, the first verse. First verse of the 15th chapter of Exodus. And here we have a song, a psalm of of God's people are celebrating that gracious and merciful act of forgiveness and deliverance. And it says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. And then you might recognize verse 2, because this is what we read this morning for our call to worship. The Lord is my strength and song, And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And then the song continues through eight, verse 18 of this, declaring God's sovereign mercy on behalf of his people and his divine wrath against his enemies. Which brings us to the second reason God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart. We saw in Romans nine seventeen. The second reason that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that God's name might be proclaimed to all the earth. The power of God in his name was to be proclaimed in all the earth. What God had done for his people of Israel in displaying his power immediately spread to the surrounding nations at the time. They all heard about it. In fact, we have it here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 14, as this psalm continues, this song of praise. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble, anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Basically, all of these saying, other than Philistia, which was over on the Mediterranean coast, all these others, Edom and Moab and Canaan, They're going, we're next. (laughs) These people are coming our way. These people who serve the Lord God, Jehovah, are coming our way. And we've heard about his power. And it's just as the Lord predicted, that great deliverance caused the name of God to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God became known even among the pagans as the awesome and fearful God who delivered Israel from Egypt. So I want to bring it down now in a way that I think we can better understand this. Because I want to show you how God's mercy, as well as God's hardening, worked for God's predetermined purposes leading up to the cross of Jesus Christ. Leading up to the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want us to go to several passages in the New Testament. Because there are many instances in the Gospels in particular 
where Jesus had mercy on whom he desired to have mercy, and at the same time, God hardened hearts. We see mercy and hardened hearts in the same instances. And so to begin to see this, go to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Second chapter of Acts. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> verse 22, page 1339 in the smaller Bibles, page 1519 in the larger. Acts chapter 2, as you know, is at Pentecost. And Acts chapter 2 records Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter shows how Christ's death on the cross was God's predetermined plan according to his, his foreknowledge. And so we see this in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Peter is speaking and he proclaims, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Doesn't that sound very familiar to the Exodus account? Miracles and signs and wonders that, that God was doing. God was showing mercy upon his people and hardening others. He says in verse 23 then, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was all in God's plan. It was his predetermined plan to fulfill his purposes through the cross of Jesus Christ, just like in the case of Pharaoh, though, God used godless men to bring this about. So I want to show you some examples of where both Jesus' mercy and the hardening of Jesus' enemies, their hearts are seen in the gospel. And it's a remarkable insight into the purposes of God. When, God, when Jesus showed mercy on whom he desired, in three particular instances of God's mercy, we see that hearts were hardened against Jesus. And the first is the Lord's mercy at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda, we find that in John chapter 5, the fifth chapter of John, John's gospel. Hope you're not tired of turning yet, because we're going to keep doing that. John's gospel, the fifth chapter, page 1309 and uh, page 1384. And when you find John chapter 15 and the fifth verse, or is it John chapter... I might have turned it. John chapter 5, I got it in my notes turned around there. Thank you. John chapter 5, the 15th verse. John 5, 15. And hold your finger there for a minute after all that struggle in finding it. The fifth chapter of John's gospel records that familiar story of the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. A multitude of those who were blind and sick and lamed and withered were lying around the pool. And it was a belief that an angel of the Lord would come and stir the pool, and whoever got into the pool first would be healed. And Jesus comes to the pool, and he saw one particular man lying there who had been ill for 38 years. And Jesus asked this man, do you wish to get well? This is a case of Jesus having mercy on whom he has mercy because Jesus singled out this one lame man amongst this multitude of people who were laying around the pool. And when the man answered that he had no one to put him into the pool, Jesus said to him, 
get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. The man immediately became well. He picked up his pallet, began to walk. And then John adds to this account, now it was the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day. So this created a stir among the Jews. And they said to the man who was carrying his pallet, the man who had been cured, they said, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. There's a killjoy in every bunch, isn't there? This is what hard-hearted people do. They see God work, and they find a reason why God couldn't have done it. And the man responded that the man who had healed him told me to pick up my pallet and walk. And they said, well, who was this man? He says, I don't know who it was. Now, the Jews wanted to know who this man was and where he was at, but Jesus had slipped away. But then he returned to tell the healed man that it was he who had healed him. Can you imagine? This is the one instance where Jesus came back and said, hey, it, it was me. And then he told him not to sin anymore. And so that brings us to verse 15 of John chapter 5. And it says, The man went away and told the Jews that, he, that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, now look at the hard-hearted response of these Jews to this act of mercy, where Jesus was doing the work of the Father. How did they respond to this mercy? Verse 18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that's a good reason to kill somebody, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Why did Jesus pick out this particular man on this particular day, a Sabbath day, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy? One reason among many here was to further antagonize the enemies of Jesus. It hardened their hearts even more. And it was all in accordance with God's predetermined plan, his foreknowledge, God who was working his will. Early in his ministry, Jesus was making sure that his enemies would get their part done in all of this. Now, the next act of mercy I'd like you to see is at the tomb of Lazarus, still in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 47. The 11th chapter of John, the 47th verse. And you might notice in, in chapter 11, as you're flipping there, that uh, chapter 11 in John's gospel, we have that great account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. It's a wonderful act of mercy, not only for Lazarus, but for his grieving sisters, Mary and Martha, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And we're familiar with that account, so I want us to focus on the hardening of Jesus' enemies. What was the result of this tremendous act of mercy of raising Lazarus from the dead? The result was the chief priest and the Pharisees got together to try to figure out what to do about Jesus. And we see that in verse 47 of John chapter 11. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? 
In other words, what are we going to do about Jesus? For this man is performing many signs. Now, I don't, there's something here I don't want you to miss in the time frame. Up to this point in time, in G, late in Jesus' ministry, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, up to this point in time, it was primarily the scribes and the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. Up to this point, the Sadducees, who were the chief priests and who controlled the temple worship, they'd been pretty much indifferent to Jesus. You see, the Sadducees had cut a deal with the Romans. We'll let you do pretty much whatever you want as long as the Jews stay under control. And so the Sadducees were the religious liberals of the day who said, we got to get along with the politicians of, uh, of the day. But their indifference all changed with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it would further antagonize the Sadducees when Jesus would then go and overturn their tables in the temple. And what did Jesus do when he mercifully raised Lazarus from the dead? He was making sure that all his enemies were completely on board according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was like Jesus was telling these guys, you need to get this thing done. Get together, figure it out. And we pick up the conversation at the Council of Pharisees and Scribes in John chapter 11, verse 48. They said, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What was their place? The Sadducees, we control the temple, we control the chief priesthood, we have control over these people. The Pharisees are saying, we control the lifestyles and the life of people, we're in control and if we let this guy get away with healing people and raising them from the dead, the Romans are going to come and take away not only our place, which is great in the nation, they're going to take away the nation itself. But one of them, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, he would have been a Sadducee, who was high priest that year. No reason he was high priest is because he paid his way in. The Romans were selling the high priesthood to the Sadducees. He says, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. Now he said, now he did not say this on his own initiative. And here we have, it's not his own initiative. Yes, he was high priest, but you can see God implanted these words into him. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, verse 53, what did they do? From that day on, they planned together. Scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, high priests. Did I leave anybody out? Sadducees. They all planned together to kill him. You can see God's hand all over this. Caiaphas and the Sadducees had all the wrong motives. They were murderous, evil motives, self-centered, self-fulfilling motives. But God superseded and accomplished his purposes. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. The greatest good ever, salvation in Jesus Christ on account of his cross. That people from many nations the world around would become together the children of God. Now the Sadducees are fully on board. 
And on account of the threats, they were threatening Jesus at this point, Jesus left Jerusalem. He got out of town, got out of Dodge. Why? Not because he was afraid. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't according to God's predetermined plan yet. And so for the next acts of mercy, we start with the hardened hearts of Jesus' enemies, and we go to, to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, verse 31. The 18th chapter of Luke, 31st verse. In Luke chapter 18, because this happens next in chronology, Jesus tells his disciples that it's time to go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to that place where they previously threatened to kill him. And Thomas was so excited about this, says, well, let's go back and die with him. Let's just, yeah, this is, this is death, Jesus. We just, well, go back. We don't have any place else to go. And Jesus begins to tell his disciples in, in verse 31 of Luke chapter 18. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. The predetermined plan, the foreknowledge of God, is about to be fulfilled at the cross of Jesus Christ, as all the prophets had foretold. Verse 32, speaking of himself, speaking of the Son of Man, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the thing that, that, that was said. You know, there's mercy just in that, that they, they didn't fully get it, because if they got fully got it at that time, they would have all freaked out and said, hey, we're not going back, and they probably would have taken him hostage and said, don't go back to Jerusalem. You know, but there's even an act of mercy preventing here. But, but there's also mercy all the way through the, this passage. Where is the mercy? On the way to Jerusalem, as Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on the cross, Jesus continued to show mercy on whom he had mercy and whom he desired. In verses 35 through 43 of this 18th chapter, we won't read it, but there's a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus who's on the side of the road and crying out to Jesus, and Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. But I want us to focus on what the children's song says, a wee little man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And that brings us to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel right here. Jesus had told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem in order to fulfill all that was written through the prophets, the predetermined plan of God. And one of these prophets was a prophet by the name of Daniel. We know of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, the prophet was told that the Messiah would be cut off or crucified, as we know, on a particular Passover according to his plan, according to God's plan. God had set the exact date, the year, the day, the month, the, the exact day in history the Messiah would be cut off. And so don't miss this. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem so that the predetermined plan of God would be fulfilled on a particular date in history, no other day. And as we know, it had to be on Passover, 
He had to die on the cross, according to our clock, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of sacrifice. There was a deadline. And yet Jesus paused and showed mercy to an unlikely guy by the name of Zacchaeus. You see, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus had also come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Zacchaeus needed to be found, just like Jesus needed to be in Jerusalem. And from our point of view, we would want to make sure that Jesus gets to Jerusalem in time for Palm Sunday, right? (laughs) You know, don't be late. We don't want to be late for this. But all things are in perfect timing according to God. And Jesus knew that with Zacchaeus, this was the time to show the ultimate mercy. Verse 1 of of Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurried, come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is sinner. Man, don't these hard-hearted people give up? <laughs> yeah, they, they just don't give up. They continue to grumble. Verse 18, or verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, because he too was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I want to close with this thought. What were the chances that the Lord Jesus would be passing through Jericho on that particular day to be in Jerusalem on a particular day at the same time when Zacchaeus would climb up into a particular tree in that particular place? What were the chances? 100%. 100%. Or as they say in probability, what were Zacchaeus' odds? The odds were one out of one. You know, you can go and check out, where are the odds winning Powerball? One in 292 million or something like that. And and then somebody said, what are the odds of winning Powerball and the Mega Millions at the same time? You know, what are the chances that the Mega Millions and the Powerball be won by the same person at the same time? And it's one in quadrillions something that you can't even imagine. What were the chances, what were the odds that Jesus would be there and save Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus would respond, one in one. Because that's how our God works, according to his predetermined plan. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Today, do not harden your hearts. You know, this could be the day that God has you in this particular place, at this particular time, to meet Jesus Christ. To come to Him. 
or recommit your life to him. And what are the odds? One out of one. One out of one. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that all things are in your hands and that you are causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, who love you and are called according to your purposes. Lord, there are many things that we do not understand. There are many things that we wonder why, why people's hearts are hardened or when there's evil or something wrong that comes against us. We, we wonder what that is, Lord. And, and Father, but the wonder of it all is that you would have mercy on us, that you would touch us. And even if we're stuck up in a tree, as it were, like Zacchaeus was, Father, we thank you for your great mercy that you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.